Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. Well, I want to talk uh, this morning around this topic, Empowered to Organize. And I'm guessing that uh, immediately there are a percentage of people that uh, are thinking, uh, what a snooze fest. I mean, what an opportunity to talk about boring stuff. Let's talk about organization. And then there's another group of people who are thinking, wow, it's about time. It's about time we talk about my specific spiritual gift. Uh, Anyone who's been accused of being uh, OCD, anyone who's been accused of being, you know, uh, controlling, anybody that's been accused of being even paranoid, uh, we're going to talk about your stuff. There's probably a significant number of those people that are saying, I need to be more empowered, to be more organized, and so we're thinking about that. Let me share with you from the book of Acts, chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So as you think about that, I I just want to remind you uh, of a couple of things. I want to remind you of this passage in Proverbs. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what He reveals, they are most blessed. Who will the church be in this messy, anxiety-ridden, angry, broken, divisive, misguided, fearful culture in which we live? Where will you be? Where should the church be? Where should you be? Who should we be? Because we have been called to a new covenant. That we are to love one another as Christ loved us. That we are together in this. That in fact there is one Lord, one faith, one God who is Father of all, one Spirit into which we were baptized. There is a unity of the body of Christ that matters. That early church is drawing thousands of people into it because people are seeing and experiencing a unity that did not exist anywhere else in the world. It didn't exist in the politics of the day. It didn't exist in the culture of the day. It didn't exist in Judaism. It didn't exist anywhere else. Only as Christ tore down the dividing walls and created this space of genuine unity in the church, this thing that is greater than and higher than any other thing we understand in our culture and our world. And that people became obedient to it. 
to look and see what God is doing and to be loyal to it, to be committed to it. And so we're thinking a little bit about what that looks like this morning and what happens in that process to all of it. Let me just ask you this. Are you keeping up? Are you keeping up? Change is the only constant in our culture and in our world and in our lives. And there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff that's changing. And, and, and as you think about that, I want you to ask this question too. Are you keeping up? Change is the only constant. Are you ready for what's next? I mean, it's like life went on hold. And I don't know how it affects you. But the truth is, when this thing started, I think we went into March and we went into those first few weeks and the thought was, we'll get back to normal pretty quickly and most of us couldn't wait. We were like, oh man, we're, we're going to do this for a few weeks, we'll do this for a month, you know, we'll do it okay, maybe we'll do it through Easter, well, maybe it'll be the first of June. But we were all anxious to get back. And then I don't know if this has happened to you, but I'm observing this and feeling this in my own body, in my own spirit, and that is the longer it's gone on, the less I'm anxious to add anything back. I mean, I feel like it takes all my energy to function. It takes all of my energy to get up in the morning and get dressed and get some work done and, and make my way through the process of life. And so now it's gone on long enough, I'm like, I don't know, man, going back to work, going going back into some mode where life returns to normal, where more is expected of me, uh, where, I, you know, my, my, you know, process might be something greater than driving through and taking food out the window of an establishment and eating it and throwing the trash in the garbage. And I might at some point have to anticipate that life's going to take on some changes. And so the question for you this morning is, are you keeping up? And I've been thinking about this just in my lifetime, and, and so indulge me for a minute in this reality. I, I, I remember uh, the, not that long ago, when I was in college, I would write papers uh, for class, and I would write them out longhand. And then I would, once they were all done and written out longhand, I would hire a typist and, and have someone type up my papers for me. I, I'm guessing there's more of you that might remember that. I remember when I got out of college and I went to work in an office at a church in ministry, and, and I remember that we, we had uh, Selectric typewriters. I don't know how many remember that, IBM Selectrics. And they, had, they were really fancy machines because uh, you could uh, change out the little ball and, and you'd have different fonts in which you could type. It was a great innovation for the typewriter. That's my lifetime. I typed things out on such a typewriter. And I remember towards the end of that early part of my ministry, we got a, our first word processor, and it was a Xerox typewriter that could hold up to 40 characters in its little memory on a little window that showed you about 20 characters at a time, and that was a word processor back in those days, the early 1980s. I went off to grad school, and my first year of grad school, I got my first computer, and it was a DOS-based computer with a monochrome monitor, when you turned it on, it, it came up to a DOS prompt, and you have to know the right commands to give it to even get into the word processing programs and how to change directories and find your stuff. And I know older people have to help the younger people. 
There's folks listening to me right now that you didn't know there was ever a time that windows did not exist, that everything was graphic-based, that you just pointed and clicked. But there was a time that you didn't have such a thing as a mouse or a rollerball. You just typed in commands and told your computer what you needed it to do. Are you keeping up? Are you keeping up? When I was growing up, we had one phone in our house. And that phone was centrally located. And I remember as I got older and went to school, kids telling me that they had extensions in their bedrooms. That they had phones in their bedroom connected into the phone line and that they could talk to their friends on the telephone in their bedroom in privacy. When I was growing up, we all talked in the same room. And really, the fact is we didn't talk on the phone. We just didn't really do that. And the big innovations came. They, they, they introduced a, a princess phone. And the princess phone was magical because, you know, where your centrally located phone, now you could take the handset and all the controls were in the handset. You didn't have to keep going back to the base in order to hang up and dial someone else. You could, you could do it all right there in the handset. What an innovation. <laughs> I, I remember when Touchtone took over. <laughs> that was a new breakthrough. We'd never seen it before. It was crazy. And then I remember there were certain rich kids at school that actually had their own line. They had a separate telephone line to their home and a separate phone number. And there were probably six of them in the whole school. Are you keeping up? I got my first cell phone while I worked here, while I was an employee in this place. And the technology is changing. Who, who imagined? I mean, here we are. I'm, I'm sharing with you this moment live on my phone. I can see your comments. I can see there's 223 devices, 22 now. I don't know who just left, but shame on you. Are you keeping up? And are you ready for what's next? Because the changes aren't just about technology. The fact of the matter is the changes have come as rapidly in this world of ministry as they've come anywhere else. Last week I was in Houston, Texas, uh, speaking at an event for pastors, and, and, a, and a young man came up to me. Actually, he wasn't that young. He was about my age. And he came up to me, and he said, hey, my name's Randy Harrell. I don't know if you remember me or not. And I said, I, of course I remember you. <laughs> we grew up together. Our families grew up together. We attended the same church from the time I was about five years old till the time I was about 13 years old. And, and it would have been uncommon on a Sunday night for my parents and his parents to all go out somewhere or to go to each other's house and hang out. And, and he said, hey, I, I, I just remember your mom teaching me in Sunday school. And I called my mom and I said, hey, I'm standing here with Randy Harrell. And, and he just wanted to say hello. He's pastoring a church here in the Houston area. And we talked and they talked. And, and I think, you know, that's how it used to be. It used to be that uh, you went to church and the church had about two or three paid employees the pastor, a custodian, and usually a part-time secretary. And everybody else was a volunteer. Everybody else. Music people were volunteers. We, we had elections every year in the church, and we elected people to run Sunday school, and we elected people to run the mission program, and we elected people to be the youth ministers. Because it was this different time. It was just a different way in which the church per worked. Back then, a big church was 500. If you had 500 people, then you might have a full-time you know, music person, or you might have a full-time youth pastor. But, but even in a church like that, 
You, know, you might have just two or three full-time people, not very many. And times have changed. Today, a, a, a committed group of people, because I don't know if you know this, but in order to become a minister, you, you have to have an extensive education. If you intend to be ordained in any organized church, you're going to need an undergrad degree and for most churches, you're going to need a graduate degree of some kind. You're going to need to be steeped in sociology and theology and biblical languages. And you're going to have to understand some things about psychology and philosophy. And you're going to need not, in addition to all of that, a really well-rounded sort of liberal arts education. And the truth is we've become highly specialized in the way we serve in the life of the church. And something's happened in that process. And one of the things that's happened is more and more lay people have moved themselves out of the life of the church. They've become more people who come as spectators and less people who come as participants because someone else who is specialized and trained, and we're thankful for all of those people. Are you ready for what's next? Are you keeping up? Because some things in ministry haven't changed at all. This is still about building relationships. And proximity and availability does not take the place of connection and community. And the fact that we've, we've been able uh, for so many years to gather together doesn't mean we've been connecting. It doesn't mean we've been getting to know each other. It doesn't mean that we've been hungry to create a network where nobody falls through the cracks. I think that'll change. This is still about allowing the Word of God to become something that's not just sitting on a coffee table or a bookshelf. It's about transferring it from that place to where it becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and relevant to what's happening. In our ever-changing culture, there is a constant, and it is the truth of God and the Word of God. And yes, sometimes we have to figure out how it applies. And sometimes in great grace and mercy, we walk that journey very carefully and very timidly because we want so much to be a safe place that is the most loving place on earth where the Holy Spirit is the agent of change. Not my job to convict people of sin. It's my job to love people and create a space where God can work in their lives. And I trust God to do that. And I trust God's going to get it right when I don't. <laughs> when my opinions might do more damage than good, we're not here because I'm the head of the church. We're here because God is the head of the church. And the Holy Spirit is alive in this place. And we work to move ourselves out of space in which we might hinder. Paul says, do not quench the Spirit, because the Spirit is alive, and the Word is alive. There's a lot that's changed, but there's a lot that hasn't changed. This is still about bringing people into a place in which the power of God transforms their life and changes them from the inside out. Change is possible. We can be transformed. We can be redeemed. Lives don't have to follow the old path. There is a way forward, no matter where we've been and what we've been through and what has happened to us, there is new life in Christ. And that hasn't changed. It hasn't changed at all. And so as we think about the things that have changed and the things that haven't changed, I think it matters to us 
that we stop for a moment and we think about what it means to be empowered to organize. Are you keeping up? Change is the only constant. Are you ready for what's next? Acts 4.32. We read it a couple of weeks ago. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And there were no needy persons among them, For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. That's chapter 4. So chapter 4 is painting a picture of this new church empowered by the Holy Spirit, empowered to witness, empowered to share, empowered to care, and now empowered to organize. And in chapter 4, everything's going well. Everything's going wonderfully. Miracles are happening. They're teaching the Word. They're calling attention to the resurrection of Jesus. People are being added to the number day after day. By chapter 6, some things have gone wrong. Who imagined that an early church full of miracles and full of the power of God and the new manifestation of the Holy Spirit and people so that everyone heard in their own language, they're speaking in tongues, and all these things are happening, and, and it's one, they're growing by thousands and thousands. Who would have imagined that the humanity would enter into such an organization? But chapter four, it's all great. Chapter six starts out with this clinical analysis. It's almost unemotional. I'm going to read it to you again, let you listen to it, and then just a few thoughts to share. Acts 6, 1 through 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them. By the way, chapter 5, uh, someone comes and pretends to be giving a bunch of church, money to the church and then they're not being honest about it and some bad things happen. So if you can, it really, this dissension starts at the close of chapter 4. It looks like everything's wonderful. Chapter 5, uh-oh. Chapter 6, uh-oh. Systemic problems. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility over them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men, and these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands over them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith, which is always an interesting sentence, isn't it? A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Um, That's a lot. That's a lot in a few short verses. So here's what's going on. So over in the church, they're gathering resources and they're taking care of anybody who has needs. But but among them, there are two kinds of Jews and a distinction is being drawn in the early church. Already, people are dividing along their specific lines. And so the, the, the specific thing that's happening is there are the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. The Hebraic Jews are the Jews who have stayed around Israel and continue to speak a derivative of Hebrew. Uh, by this time, the old language of Hebrew uh, was dead. It has been revived, by the way, in the last couple of, uh, in the last century. And so uh, now people do speak the old Hebrew. In fact, now it's hard to find people who speak the derivative, which is Aramaic. Aramaic is the derivative that Jesus spoke uh, 
And, and so there were these Jews, the Hebraic Jews, who stayed around Jerusalem and stayed around Israel, and they spoke Aramaic. They were known as the Hebraic Jews. But there were also Jews who, through the various dispersions of time, had moved beyond Israel and lived in other places and now are moving back into uh, and they were Greek. They had become uh, really immersed in the Greek culture, and they didn't speak Aramaic anymore. They only spoke Greek, and they were known as Hellenistic Jews. And so you had the, the, the Hebraic, Aramaic-speaking Jews, and you had the Hellenistic, Koine, Greek-speaking Jews, and someone in the wisdom of the church decided that the Hebraic, Aramaic, speaking Jews were closer to God and deserved more cut of the pie than the Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews. Now, it's all clinical when it's written down, but let me tell you, it wasn't clinical and it wasn't unemotional. Someone decided, made a choice, that these people seemed more spiritual and closer to God than these people, and they deserved more than those folks deserved. And it seems to me that here, right at the beginning of the life of the church, we're only in chapter 6, and we, are, we didn't even get through three chapters before it started coming apart, because human beings are like that. Are you ready for what's next? Change is the only constant. Are you keeping up? And so in this process now, they, they take a look at it and they say, listen, this is not okay. This is not good. I, I see six things that happen to them that I think matter to us and that we ought to think about, not only for the life of the church, but for our own lives as well. Number one, the problem was identified. They had the courage to stop what was going on and say, hey, we got a problem here and we're going to talk about it. And we're going to get it right out in the front. And here's the problem. This is not fair. And it's not okay. And it's not true. And it's not real. And we're not going to live with it. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're going to identify it and we're going to address it. I wonder how many of us struggle in our journey in our life. How many of our churches struggle in their journey and in their life. Because we simply won't say what the problem is. Because we simply won't identify what is keeping us from being who God has invited us to be. And somehow, in that early church, this, this empowerment to organize was built around this. I'm not only empowered to fix some things, I'm empowered to understand what's broken. I'm empowered to understand why it works this way and what is deteriorating around me. God has given me a brain. He's given me some intellect. He's given me some skills, some gifts, some experience. And I'm supposed to bring that into the life of the kingdom of God and use it to the best of my ability. I've been empowered to organize. And they identified the problem. They talked about it. They came together to figure out what was going on and why it was going on and to, to name it. And by the way, to be responsible for it. It seems to me that one of the issues we have in our culture today is nobody's responsible for anything. I mean, no, it's nobody's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. That's the sum total of our politics. Not my fault. Not my fault. It's not my fault. Shouldn't we be different than that? I mean, shouldn't the question not be whose fault is it or who's to blame, but shouldn't the question be, can't we do better? Can't we do better as followers of Jesus Christ and building the kingdom of God? 
we ought to be able to identify the problems. The second thing that I noticed that they did, the, the mission was prioritized. They took a look at what was what, and they said, here's the things that are going on. We've got some apostles who were in the presence of Jesus and heard him teach and observed the miracles, and, and their job is to, to teach what Jesus taught. You know, that was the teach the teacher thing. And so Jesus taught, and now they're teaching, and they should not be spending their time and energy on serving tables, as they say very pointedly. And so they just made some decisions. They talked about the core of the mission and what the purpose was and what the organization was about. And they said, you know, let's organize around this idea that there are core things for us to serve, and we're going to get those done. We're going to make sure those get done. And then we're going to let everything else sort of center around this mission that is at the center of our existence and of our lives. Are we ready for what's next? Because change is coming. It's happening to us. Number three, the work was organized. The work was organized. They made a plan. They used plain old logic, best practice, common sense. They looked at the numbers and they looked at the tasks and they matched them up. I just wonder in the life of the church, you know, how often when we think about this, where we would go, you know, here's what we need. I, I don't know about you, but this is, the, this is the truth of how ministry works now. Uh, we ache for volunteers. We ache for them. Uh, we, we have a few people who do tons and tons and tons and tons of work, but the vast majority of people walk in, spectate, and walk out. And somewhere in there, that's not a great organization. <laughs> that's not a highly organized way of doing business. And the early church, they, they could identify the problem, they could prioritize the mission, and then they could do the work of organizing. Here's what we need. Here's what it looks like. I need this many people to do this job. Number four, they strategized. The plan was strategized. Not only were they logical about it, but they were strategic about it. I don't know if you notice anything unusual about the list of names that are given, but all of the list of names that are given are Greek names, meaning here we got a little credibility issue, and there's been a situation of prejudice and racism in the life of the church. And so here's the problem. The Hellenistic Jews have been mistreated and the Hebraic Jews have been preferred. So we are going to strategize and we're going to raise up seven Hellenistic leaders who can rebuild what is broken in the trust with our Hellenistic followers. We're going to reach out strategically because God gave us a brain and we're not dumb. And we're going to prioritize the mission, but we're going to organize logically, but we're going to strategize completely. And they did. And they did. Number five, the jobs were sanctified. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Listen, this is the body of Christ. And it is the work of God. And the work of God doesn't have favorites, though the culture does. And I want to tell you something. 
When a pastor starts to think that the job of being a pastor is more important than other jobs in the church, something's wrong. The, the scripture is explicit about this. The body of Christ. You, you, everybody's got a job. But the head of the church is Jesus Christ. And we all serve him. And we're all coming before him and giving him our best. These folks were not just waiting tables as if they were working down at a restaurant somewhere. They were breaking bread and offering support to those in need as a sacred act of worship and leadership in the life of the church. And they treated it like that. They brought them down front and they laid hands on them and they prayed over them and they sanctified the work they were going to do as set aside exclusively for God. And listen, there are no small jobs in the church. There are no small jobs in the kingdom of God. This is a place where it all matters. And, and if we don't all serve, it just doesn't get done. Now, I know right now you're thinking, Pastor Dave's lost his mind. We're COVID-19. We're not, we're, we can't do one thing. Are you ready for what's coming? Are you ready for what's coming? Number six and the last one. The fruit was multiplied. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The church kept growing. It kept doing what it does. It kept expanding. The kingdom of God kept bearing fruit. Let me just be really honest with you as we kind of wrap up here. Studies tell us that changes are coming in the life of the kingdom of God. They were, studies were telling us this five years ago. Listen, there used to be a time when being in ministry was considered to be a noble profession. Culturally, that is not true anymore. Uh, to be a, a minister today uh, is a suspect job. People believe that maybe you're prejudiced, uh, homophobic, xenophobic, you know, pick, pick your poison. In fact, more and more politically, it looks like the church is being identified as a source of hate and propaganda instead of a source of love and grace. And listen, some of that's our fault. Some of that's our fault. We're told that because of that reality, fewer and fewer people are sensing and answering the call into ministry, that we are, we are training. In fact, seminaries today are struggling to stay open because training professional ministers is no longer such an acute need in our culture. When you throw that into the research that also tells us that the boomer generation, of which I'm the last, some of the very last of the boomers, are dying off very rapidly. And that across the country, some phenomenon is about to take place, and COVID is going to accelerate that. That, in fact, what will happen in the next few years is we will close thousands and thousands and thousands of churches. Some will be closed because the deferred maintenance will ultimately catch up with them, and it'll be one more thing that finally condemns the building and they can't function anymore, and there are no resources. But another reason is we simply have churches where pastors are retiring and there is no one to take their place. Listen, the kingdom of God is going to go through dramatic changes in the next few years. Are we ready?
Are you ready? The early church understood that they were empowered, organized. That it wasn't a time for panic and it wasn't a time that we just go, ah. This was a time when they looked at the problems and they dealt with them and they prioritized the mission and they, and they did the logical work of organization. They brought their intellect into it and they strategized and they talked about how to mend things that were broken in the lives and hearts and emotions of people. Not one time did they ever say, well, this is just who we are. Take us or leave us. They had a depth of maturity that said, no, no. We're going to continue to evolve. We're going to continue to understand. These people matter. We're not okay with the fracturing that's going on. We're not okay with the divisiveness. We're not okay with all of it. And we're all going to get involved. And we're all going to do our part. And listen, this little strategy is not just about the church. It's about your home. It's about your family. Do you have the courage to talk about what's wrong? Do you have the courage to prioritize the mission of what's supposed to happen in your home and in your family? Can you talk about the work of organizing and use your logic? Can you strategize how to pull people together instead of pushing them apart? Can we have conversations about, listen, that's not really helping. That's not really creating. We don't want that around the Thanksgiving dinner table. We want something else. We want a sanctuary apart from the culture and the world and the divisiveness. Don't bring that stuff in here. Don't do that to us. This is our home. This is our family. This is who we were created to be. We're the only ones we get. We just get to do this one time. And we ought to do it well. And we ought to sanctify the work. It matters. We ought to, we ought to celebrate the people who are contributing. We ought to challenge those who are not. I don't know if you know this, but that's sort of in the Bible. And it shouldn't just be in our homes and our families. It should be right here in the life of the church. Are you ready for what's next? Are you praying about it? Are you anticipating? Changes are coming. We're not going to be the same church when we start meeting again that we were when we stopped meeting back in March. This will be a different place. But listen, it's the same God. And we have a mission to accomplish, and that has not changed. That early church was empowered to organize, and we are empowered to organize. And so what I want to ask you is this. Are we in this together? Are you with me in this? And are you praying and are you seeking? Are you keeping up? Are you ready for what's next? Let's say a prayer as a band comes back. God, thank you. As we think about what our future looks like and what it means, we know there's lots of unknowns, but there's also lots of constants. And the constants are your faithfulness and your call and your mission for us. We don't know what the church is going to look like in 10 years, but... I bet it's going to look different. And maybe somehow this virtual way in which we connect begins to plant house churches all the way across this country in which we, we just hang on to folks who might be moving out of our neighborhoods and out of our area. We just continue to fellowship together as one family because we can. Because it's just one great church. I pray you'd open our hearts and open our minds to whatever might be next. That we wouldn't think in the same old patterns or in the same old paradigms, but you'd tear down the dividing walls and you would invite us into a space in which we become the church of Jesus Christ in ways we have not experienced in decades and maybe never ever before. 
So we offer ourselves to you. Empower us to organize from the inside out. Sort out the confusion and chaos inside our own hearts and minds. Remind us that we will look up. That we will have a vision of what you have in mind. And we won't stumble around looking around at each other. Remind us that there's a new command and a new covenant. That we love one another. As you've loved us. There's one faith, one baptism, one God, one spirit who is over all and in us all. So I pray, God, that you would get us ready for what's next. And that you would lead and guide and bless the kingdom of God that it could be your kingdom alive on earth. I pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Let's worship together and response. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.